want to start um, just by mentioning something that uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu said in an interview in 2017. He said, the worst thing that could happen to anybody in this cultural environment is to fail. Now, maybe that feels like quite a bold statement, but I guess for many of us, if we were truly honest, we are kind of afraid of failure, something that can be exacerbated by the worlds that we live in. And so this morning, that's what I want us to focus on. I want us to think about what happens when we mess up and how God, in his kindness, helps us to overcome our mistakes. Now, I can think of a number of times in my own life where I've messed up, like the time I crashed my mum's car into a trolley bay at Sainsbury's two weeks after I'd passed my driving test, or the time I broke a boy's nose uh, because I didn't want him to know that I fancied him. That's a true story. I was eight years old. Didn't work out too well for me. Or even the time that I accidentally spilled my drink on a bride at her wedding. I know, it wasn't good. It's unfortunate, that one. You know, failure, it can be hilarious, can't it? When, you know, it's all we're talking about is a funny anecdote from our teenage years. Or remember that lawyer during COVID who accidentally turned himself into a cat on a Zoom call? I'd forgotten that story completely, and then Susie reminded me of it this week. I was like, it's comedy gold, isn't it? You know, we love a good blooper moment. But the reality is that we do also hate failure. You know, remember the reactions to Rashford, Sancho, and Saka when they failed school penalties during the World Cup semi-finals. Or think of some of the venomous comments that have been aimed at Prince Harry and Meghan Markle for stepping down as senior royals. You know, those poor footballers, they didn't actually really do anything wrong, but that moment is going to stay with them for a really long time because the internet does provide a near-permanent record of our mistakes. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes people's failure can be incredibly damaging, and those mistakes need to be held to account. But returning to Desmond Tutu's point, sometimes even the slightest mistakes can feel quite crippling because ultimately they remind us that we're flawed. And when we focus on our flaws, it causes us to question whether we're even worthy of people's approval, love, or connection. Now, I'm sure all of us will have examples of where we've messed up in some way. Maybe there are even mistakes you've made this week at work or in conversations with your spouse or your children or your parents. Maybe you're carrying a sense of shame over something that you've done. The reality is none of us are immune from making mistakes. But here's the good news. See, unlike the Twitter sphere, God, our Father, he deals with our mistakes in a totally different way to the way that our culture does. Instead of holding things against us, he responds to us with grace and he gives us an opportunity to overcome our failures so that we can live a new and transformed life in him. And so to help us appreciate what this looks like, we're going to focus on an interaction that Jesus had with one of his disciples, Peter. Now, Peter, he was no stranger to messing things up. You know, forget spilling a drink on a bride. Peter was supposed to be one of Jesus' closest friends. But after passionately protesting that he would never deny Jesus and even claiming that he would rather die alongside him, 
On the very night that Jesus was arrested, Peter told three different people that he didn't even know him. And when the cockerel crowed on the third denial as Jesus had predicted, Peter understandably wept bitterly. So a couple of weeks after that, in John 21, that's where we find Peter in the passage that we're going to look at today. Peter and the disciples, they've gone on a fishing trip. But despite being out all night, they don't catch anything. And so on their way back to shore, they spot this guy waiting for them who tells them to throw their net to the other side of the boat. And so as they do, almost immediately the net fills with fish. And they realize, of course, it's Jesus. And so at this point, Peter throws himself overboard into the water, as you do, and he swims to shore. And when they all arrive, Jesus has set up a little beach barbecue for them, and he makes them some breakfast. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story in John 21, and we're starting in verse 15. And it says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So you've got the miracle of the overflowing net of fish, Jesus cooking his mates some breakfast on a beach, and then quizzing Peter on whether or not he loves him. There is a lot that we could unpack here. But before we even get to any of that, the first question is, well, why are they here in the first place? You know, we know from the previous chapter that, that Jesus has revealed himself to them. You know, the Messiah who they thought was dead has literally shown them his nail-scarred hands and the wound in his side. So why are they out fishing instead of going about and telling everybody the good news? Well, some people, they might say that Peter and the disciples, they're just biding their time until Jesus comes to tell them what to do next. But there's also another argument to suggest that what's happening here is that Peter has lost his confidence. And as a result, he's reverted back to his old way of life. See, Jesus had told Peter in Matthew 4 that he was going to make him a fisher of men. But in his guilt and his shame, he's gone back to living as Simon the fisherman. He even goes back to the very place where Jesus first found him by the Sea of Galilee, here called the Sea of Tiberias. See, Jesus had given him a new calling, a new life, even a new name. But in his guilt, he's just in no place to live up to any of it. Now, I wonder what moments of failure you've experienced Maybe, like Peter, you've betrayed a friend or broken somebody's trust or cheated or lashed out or given in to addiction. Now, whatever failings we might be carrying around, this interaction between Jesus and Peter on the bank of Lake Galilee, it shows us that our mistakes don't have to define us. Peter's mistake doesn't have to hold him back from all that Jesus has for him. And the good news 
is that the same is true for each and every one of us. So, how does Jesus do this? How does he help Peter and us to overcome our mistakes and our failings? Well, firstly, he meets us in it. In verse 6, Jesus is waiting for the disciples on the shore, and when he sees that they've not caught anything, he tells them to cast their net to the other side of the boat. And as they do, it says they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Notice that the first thing that Jesus does isn't to question what they're doing or to reprimand them for running off to fish. Instead, he takes the time to help them. And in this instance, help comes in the form of breakfast. Now, I don't know about any of you guys, but I am pretty convinced that hunger is a real thing and it is a real issue. And the best way to help when somebody is feeling hungry is to give them some food. And I don't know anyone for who this is more true than my husband, Heinz. Now, recently, we were coming towards the end of a walk, and uh, he hadn't eaten in a couple of hours. Keep that in mind, hours, not days. And this perfectly healthy 28-year-old man, he turned to me. This is a direct quote. This is exactly what he said. He turned to me, and he said, Amy, I'm weak. I can't put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> I love it. You know, after five years of marriage, I have learned that sometimes if Heinz isn't quite feeling like himself, the best thing that I can do to help him is to feed him. You know, it's a silly example, but this is genuinely what Jesus does for the disciples. You know, he meets them on the beach and he gives them something to eat when they're tired and they're exhausted. But this moment is so much more than just about food and more than practical help. It's a relational moment, one where Jesus, who conquered the power of sin and death, he comes to hang out with his friends and he cooks them a meal and he shares in it with them. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus relates to people, not from a distance, but with real intimacy and friendship and how in his grace and his mercy, Jesus comes to meet us where we're at. You know, Carl Tuttle, he is an old vineyard worship leader and he wrote a fantastic little book. It's called Reckless Mercy. And in it, he talks about a time where Jesus came to meet him in one of his lowest moments. See, in the 90s, Carl was a pastor. He was an internationally famous worship leader. But then his marriage broke down. He wasn't allowed to see his kids. And as a result, he ended up resigning from the church amid struggles with alcohol and pornography. You know, reflecting on this time in his life, Carl said this. I was sitting alone in the dark in my studio apartment. No children, no family, no hope. Only darkness and loneliness remained. Everything that ever mattered to me had been stripped away. God, I cried out, everything is gone, and I don't know if I can make it. I could sense a gentle presence. It was as if the Lord was kneeling down at my chair in front of me. He placed his hands on my knee and said, but I'm here. You know, Carl then goes on to talk about how significant that moment was for him in helping him to overcome his failure and shame. 
You know, his situation hadn't changed. He still needed to address his addiction to alcohol and pornography. But he said, I knew Jesus was with me, and that was all that mattered. You know, maybe you've messed up, and just like Carl, there have been moments where you felt really alone in it. And if that is you, I believe that Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. He is with you, and he wants to help you through it. You know, what I also find really amazing about this story is that Jesus doesn't leave Peter alone, but neither do his friends. In verse 3, when Peter says that he's going to go fishing, his friends respond and they say, well, we will go with you. In the isolation of failure, Peter turns to those around him and they get alongside him. This is what the church is all about. You know, getting alongside each other and supporting one another through our struggles. You know, I remember when I was first married. Now, honestly, at times, it was really tough. I just felt like I was doing it wrong. Often, I still do. You know, constantly making mistakes, saying the wrong thing, behaving like the worst version of myself. You know, I even remember in one moment of frustration just throwing a candle holder at the wall. You know, I genuinely felt like I was such a failure at marriage sometimes. But I have some amazing friends in this church, and they prayed for me through that time, and one very good friend offered to meet with me each week so that we could pray together. And so that's what we did. We made a list of things to pray for, and every week, for at least a year, we would spend some time sitting down and praying for me and praying for my marriage. Now, like I said, don't get me wrong, I have not managed to nail marriage in any way. Even this week, as I've been writing this talk, I've made mistakes and I've had to go to Heinz and apologize for things. But it honestly was the biggest blessing in that time to have that friend praying alongside me to help me get through that particularly challenging season. You know, maybe like I did, you need to reach out and ask someone to pray for you or join a small group community so other people can walk alongside you regularly. You know, how can you allow Jesus and other people to meet you where you're at? So that's the first thing. Jesus meets us in it. And secondly, he restores us. See, after breakfast is finished, Jesus takes Peter aside for a chat. But notice, he doesn't actually call him Peter. Remember how, because of his failure, he's reverted back to his old way of life. Well, in meeting him where he's at, Jesus actually calls Peter by his old name, Simon. You know, it's as if Jesus is acknowledging that Peter has messed up a little bit. I like to think of this moment as a bit of a kind of I see you moment because the reality is that God does see our mistakes and he does take them seriously. But in his kindness, he doesn't leave us there and Jesus doesn't leave Peter there. You know, looking back at our passage, you know, Jesus asks Simon, do you love me? And you can tell by the third time that he asks him, Simon is getting a bit frustrated because he responds, well, you know everything. It's like he's saying, well, if you know so much, you must know that I love you. But remember how many times Peter denied Jesus? Three. 
It's like with each declaration of love, Jesus is writing off his denial and inviting Simon to follow him again like he did the very first time they were sat on that beach. See, this is what Jesus does. He meets us in our brokenness, but he doesn't leave us there. He wants to help us to overcome our failings so that we can live a new and restored life in him. See, I know in my own life that Jesus has helped to restore me from mistakes that I've made. You know, I remember one particular encounter I had with Jesus when I was living in my student halls. Being out the night before, I was in an absolute mess. I'd made some decisions that I deeply regretted, and I was feeling really, really full of shame. And I hadn't been into a church for, for months, and I didn't really know how I could ever kind of go along with the stuff that I was carrying. But it was like I could hear Jesus' voice in my mind saying, you can keep living this way if you want, if that's what you want, and I will still love you. I will always love you. But this is not my best for you. And so in his kindness, Jesus, in that moment, he invited me again, like Peter, to choose to follow him once again. You know, looking back at Carl's story, it took a little bit of time, but eventually God brought him to a place where he could return to the church and even be reconciled with a number of the people that he'd hurt through his actions. You know, some of us, we might be here and we're feeling like our failure is too big. There's no way that Jesus can restore the things that I've done. Maybe we feel like ourselves, we feel like we are a failure. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't expect you to be perfect. In fact, he knows that you're not. That's why he died on the cross, so that the consequence of every mistake that you've ever made and will ever make would be taken on him. That is how much he loves each and every one of you. He wants you to live free of the weight of failure because he's already dealt with it. But like I said before, you know, he doesn't just leave it there. In the vineyard, we have a saying that I love. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And it's a saying that helps us to understand that, you know, Jesus, he accepts us and he embraces us no matter what. But he also invites us into a new way of living, and I heard um, an illustration somewhere that I thought seemed to really encapsulate this quite well. You know, if we were to go and see a doctor with all of our ailments and our aches and our pains, and they took us in, but they had no concern whatsoever for our future well-being, we would probably leave and go and find ourselves a better doctor, wouldn't we? You know, Jesus, he's not, he's not trying to change us into someone we're not, but what he does want to do is help us to become the best of who we were always meant to be. See, it says Peter lets go of his old life of denial and sin, that he's able with Jesus by his side to step into the life that he was always intended to live, to feed his sheep and to be the rock on which Jesus was going to build his church. You know, in saying all of this, we're not going to get this perfectly right. You know, even when we choose to live our lives for Jesus, we are going to keep failing time and time again. All of us fall short. All of us are human. 
You know, Peter even did. He went on to make more mistakes. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. And so that means that we can be confident that as we move forward, even though we will stumble, that Jesus is still with us and he is still working through our failings. Which leads us so nicely into the final thing that I want to draw out of this passage, which is that he uses us through it. See, the most amazing thing that I think about this encounter is that as Jesus restores Peter, it's like the calling that he put on Peter's life in the first meeting never changed. Jesus still asks him to feed his lambs and tend his sheep. And, you know, after Jesus recommissions him as the rock on which he'd build the church, that's what Peter then goes on to be. You know, he ends up being the leader of the other disciples and he preaches boldly about Jesus' resurrection. And 3,000 people get saved in one day and added to the church. You know, Peter, he might have denied Jesus in that one moment. But he went on to be so restored that he ended up withstanding serious persecution and even being crucified himself for the sake of Jesus. It's just a total turnaround from that infamous night where Peter uh, denied him. So no matter how we've messed up or failed, when we give Jesus our heart and we choose to follow his ways instead of our own, we can trust that he has plans to use us. See, this is precisely God's way. It's who he is and it's what he does. You know, we can trust that he has plans to use us. And as we, you know, look back through history, we can see that there is so much truth in this. You know, we could look at the Apostle Paul, who went from being a persecutor of Christians to planting churches and sharing the gospel. We could think of John Newton, who started his career as a slave trader and then became a campaigner for the abolition of slavery when God transformed his heart. You know, some of us, we might know the story of Nicky Cruz, who led the Mau Mau Street Gang in New York City in the 1950s. You know, Nicky Cruz and his fellow gang members, they had a history of violent crime. And at one point, a court-ordered psychiatrist even told Nicky that he was doomed, finished, on a one-way trip to jail, the electric chair, and hell. But things changed when he had an encounter with a Christian evangelist, a guy called David Wilkerson. You know, while preaching, David Wilkerson, he, he told Nicky that God would never stop loving him. To which Nicky responded by slapping David Wilkerson across the face and threatening to kill him. But Wilkerson persisted and he sent Nicky Cruz a message saying, you can kill me and cut me into a thousand pieces and throw them right there on the street. But every piece will cry that Jesus loves you. You know, eventually at a gathering in the gang's neighborhood where Nicky Cruz had intended to do David Wilkerson harm, he instead found himself repenting of the things that he had done. And in a total turnaround of events, David Wilkerson ended up praying for him and he gave his life to Jesus there and then asking God to forgive him. It's a beautiful story. You know, Nicky Cruz, he's still alive, and he has spent the last 60 years sharing the hope and the good news of Jesus, going back into his old neighborhoods and leading other members of the Mau Mau Gang to Jesus. 
And it's also estimated, apparently, that in those 60 years, he's been able to share the gospel in person to tens of millions of people. What a transformation. You see, when we allow Jesus to meet us in our failings and accept his forgiveness, we can boldly step forward into the life that he's calling us into. And as we do, we get to share that love and grace that we have received from him with those around us. So I wonder what this might look like for you. Maybe you know that there are ways that you've messed up or failed. And this morning, Jesus is inviting you, like Peter, to accept his forgiveness so that you can let go of the old life and live in the fullness of life that he has for you. For some of us this morning, this might just be a great opportunity to let Jesus meet you where you're at. You know, maybe you, you don't really know Jesus or like Peter, you've retreated from him, but you want to experience this kind of love and restoration in your own life. Maybe you don't actually feel like you're failing right now and you're kind of struggling to see how this message might fit into your life and that's fair enough, but the reality is, as it says in Romans 3, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So whether it's now or in the future, all of us will make mistakes and be in need of that grace through redemption that comes from Jesus. And like the story of Nikki Cruz shows us, none of us are too far away from God being able to restore us. See, no matter what we've done, he loves each and every one of us. And if we're up for following him, he has amazing plans for our lives. We don't have to live under the weight of our mistakes or our shame, or our failure. Instead, Jesus helps us to overcome it. 